Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Tonight is talk number six in our series on Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And uh, I was going to look at the last couple of chapters, um, but then two things happened. One is I was supposed to fly home from Chicago last night at 7 p.m. And there were so many delays. I ended up, for a one-hour flight, I ended up arriving home at 3 a.m. So that, I got a lot of time to prepare. <laughs> but what happened was I read to the end of the book to, and started making notes. And then I just started at the beginning again. And then I just read the whole thing right through. So that's what I did till 3 AM. And uh, then I, I saw all these layers of the text that I, I didn't even see before, which is what happens with this book. Every, I'm, I'm, I know many of you have read this book before. And every time you read it, it's like there's this whole new new layer. So I couldn't get past the beginning of the book. So we're going to end at the beginning of the book. Um, and I thought we would talk a little bit about uh, the chapter on bowing. The title of the section is actually called Bowing, if you want to read it, uh, which is um, page 28. Oh, I forgot about it. I completely forgot about the interview because we skipped it last week. Yeah. Forget bound. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. So, so who's doing it? I'm presenting. Oh. I'm introducing Angela. Okay. I wish you reminded me earlier because I'm, I'm really foggy today. So, uh, for those of you who weren't here. We've been doing this practice where somebody interviews somebody else um, and then uh, introduces them to the, to the room, to the group, to the sangha. And then we skipped it last week and it really threw me off. But welcome back. So um, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll pause it so you don't have to be shy. What was the line that you said that what you love most is being present for each moment? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so beautiful. What's most important? How many of us would say that? That's such a beautiful thing. It's so interesting when you hear about someone else's life. I get this thing where I hear someone else's life, and I also sometimes at some moment think, their life is so interesting. <laughs> well, I could never have a life like that. Interesting. But anyways, all our lives are so interesting. Like Shinru Suzuki said a couple weeks ago, do you remember when you saw the train tracks? He said, you know, sitting in meditation with you is so unusual because life is so unusual. <laughs> so you hear, you hear these people's stories each week and it's nice because we get to know them and also just reflect on people have these lives, all these lives intermingling. It's, it's an amazing thing. Um, it's the problem with practicing often is we get mechanical, and then we hear these sentences, and then they don't impact us anymore. Like you hear the present moment, and it just kind of goes by. And then sometimes you have to stop and go, oh, the most important thing to Angela is being in the present moment. And then to realize, that is such a beautiful thing. 
that that's the most important thing in your life. I, I hope I'll be able to say something like that. I don't know who's going to introduce me. We'll pick someone who's never been here before. Um, so I've been introducing Shinra Suzuki, and uh, tonight we're going to talk about bowing. Um, so, yeah, bowing seems a bit of a formal element of practice. And I encourage you, when you're bowing, to treat it as an informal part of practice. Because otherwise, bowing becomes holy. And when things become holy, they become special. And I think it's really important not to make bowing too special, not to make it too precious. And that's why bowing is such a difficult practice. When I started studying with my teacher, Enki Oroshi, I came out of a tradition of Vipassana where we don't really do much bowing. And um, I, I love just watching her bow. And she said to me recently that her main practice right now is bowing. That's her main practice. And it's very hard to bow. Have you tried? When you bow, sometimes it's just too sloppy, you know, like you're not fully in the bow. And sometimes you're fully in the bow, and it's just too rigid. You're not being yourself. So when you bow, it's exactly the same as meditation practice. You need to be completely still and expressing yourself at exactly the same time. It's really tricky to do that. So here's what Shinru Suzuki says about bowing. After meditation, we bow to the floor nine times. We by bowing, we are giving up ourselves. So he's talking about ceremony. By bowing, we're giving up ourselves. To give up ourselves means to give up our dualistic ideas. So there's no difference between meditation practice and bowing. Usually to bow means to pay our respect to something which is more worthy of respect than ourselves. But when you bow to Buddha, you should have no idea about Buddha. You should just become one with Buddha. You are already Buddha. When you become one with Buddha, one with everything that exists, you find the true meaning of being. When you forget your dualistic ideas, everything becomes your teacher, and everything can be the object of worship. Isn't that beautiful? That means all day you can just go around and just bow to everything. And so we call this sometimes bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of uh, pure devotion. It's the yoga of love. And in tantric circles, bhakti yoga is considered the, the only path that has no path. It's the pathless path. Because what you're bowing to is what you're devoted to. And what you're devoted to is just what's arising right now. And if we can have a practice of, uh, with that kind of devotion, I think it could only come from physically bowing as much as we can. Really to physically bow. And so that's why it's really important when you bow, you're not just bowing from here. This is Facebook bowing. <laughs> so you want to bow from deep down here. So, so that when you bow, we were working on this in yoga tonight, when you bow, you want the underside of your belly to hollow out. Okay? This is also like throwing up. It's the same practice. So you're throwing up everything you know. So I like to think of this as like existential bulimia. So as much as possible, you see that you're filled with all of these ideas of reality, and then as soon as you get filled with them, you throw it up. So that's the transverse abdominus. It's right above the pubic bone. Hollows out. And, and it's interesting because when your transverse abdominus gets hollow, the roof of your mouth gets hollow and your soft palate lifts. So that's the act of bowing. So literally, at a subtle body level, the act of bowing when you do it from the hips is the same pattern as throwing up. But what are you throwing up? You're throwing up, as Shinra Suzuki just says, your dualistic ideas. Your dualistic ideas. And Tantra this is called Vama Shakti, which is the vomit of Shakti. So, so the idea is, is that your, your inner body is like a serpent, which is called Kundalini Shakti. 
It's just like a serpent. I think we were talking about this last week. And the serpent is your inhale and exhale. So it's like a serpent is like a fan, right? It has all these folds. When you inhale, fan opens up. When you exhale, the fan comes back together again. And every fold in the fan, when it opens, reveals something about yourself. It reveals sensation, feelings, images, preconceptions, ideas. And then the next inhale reveals more of those folds. Then the exhale pulls it all back together. But the thing about Kundalini Shakti, the thing about this pattern, is that the center of the pattern is empty. So if you don't stick your mind in the center of that pattern, then you're just experiencing this unfolding of sensation, ideas, the world, and on the exhale, the coming back together of the world, back and forth. But there's no mind in it. It's just actually how reality is before you make any decisions about it. And that is actually the heart, I think, of devotion, is not to just be devoted to what we want to be devoted to, Kind of like we were talking about beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is easy to say, oh, I, I practice, and I have beginner's mind. Or someone will say, what do you do? I practice beginner's mind. But actually, most of us have beginner's mind in a very narrow spectrum. We're beginners just in one area. But how do you be a beginner in every breath? And how you be a beginner in every breath is how you actually meet the moment, which is to bow to each moment, to give up your dualistic ideas literally to throw them up, to throw them up. And it's actually said, I won't go too far into Indian metaphysics, but it's said, the whole, or I've already started, the whole world is actually Vama Shakti. So the whole world is actually the vomit of Kundalini, which is very interesting to think about. So next time you look at your hand and you think, or your arm, you think, oh, I'm getting so tanned, be all ready for the beach in July, or so toned because I'm doing yoga every day, then you can remember what you're looking at is just vomit. It's universal vomit. You look in the mirror, you're upset about your aging, you just remember all you're looking at is just pure vomit. It's the residue, shesha, the vomit of the universe. It's very helpful, I think. Especially if you have a little bit of narcissism. Just whenever you look at and then you look at someone else, think, oh, they're like me, pure vomit. <laughs> and then their bad breath is okay. It's hardly anything compared to really what they are. It's vomit. So, anyways, I don't know how I got there, but uh, so I don't know the etymology, and I'm probably wrong. But imagine <laughs> that the word vow and bow are somehow related to each other. Because when we bow, we're actually vowing to be devoted to what's actually there in that moment. And that's a beautiful thing about bowing, is you bow, and then you come back up, and it's fresh. And that's the best part of bowing, is coming. It's like throwing up. It's not so good on the way down, but then you come up, and it's so fresh. <laughs> sort of. Um, there's a wonderful story about Shinra Suzuki because you know I've been telling stories about him and just about his freshness and one that I really like that I came across yesterday was a student comes to him uh, on retreat and says I don't know what it is but every time I ha every chance I have free time I go to the kitchen and I'm snacking a lot has anyone done this before <laughs> keep going to the kitchen and I'm snacking a lot I don't know what to do all I want to do is snack what should I do? <laughs> so Shinra Suzuki reached under his table and pulled out and said, would you like some candy? <laughs> I like this story. It's fresh. He's fresh. So then he says, In your big mind, everything has the same value. Oh, sorry, I skipped. When everything exists within big mind, all dualistic relationships drop away. There's no distinction between heaven and earth, a man or a woman, a teacher or a disciple. Sometimes a man bows to a woman. Sometimes a woman bows to a man. Sometimes a disciple bows to a master. Sometimes the master bows to the disciple. 
A master who cannot bow to his disciple cannot bow to Buddha. Sometimes the master and disciple bow together to Buddha. Sometimes we may bow to cats and dogs. Isn't that nice? When I hear this, I think not only of um, um, the literal kind of like teacher-student relationship. In, in, in uh, Sanskrit, the word for a teacher is guru, which is actually where you get through Latin, the word gravity comes from this word. And it means somebody who's heavy. And what not like this, but just heavy in the sense of they're not so moved um, by the kind of secondary thinking and secondary conceptualization that make us suffer so much. Um, and shishya is the student. And it says, so the student is just like a feather. So the teacher is like gravity, and the student is the feather. But it's said that from the perspective of the feather, there's gravity. But from the perspective of, the, of gravity, there's no feather. So from the perspective of the teacher, there's no student, really. Because there's just gra- everything's gravity. You see the student falling towards gravity until they get it. So there's only really a teacher from the perspective of somebody who's floating. Which is kind of beautiful, I think, this, this image. Um, and so the, the feather has to be able to bow to gravity. And gravity has to be able to bow to the feather. There are parts of yourself that are light as a feather and they're floating around and they don't want to learn about gravity. Like that part of us that doesn't want to grow up. Have you heard of this? Some people have this part of... Carl Jung called it the puer, based on Greek mythology, or which is where you get Peter Pan, is that part of us that doesn't want to grow up. And that part of us has to be able to bow to the part of us that's growing up. And the part of us that's growing up has to bow to the part of us that doesn't want to grow up. Because if they don't take care of each other, you're in big trouble. Yeah. That's probably where all the Porsche sales come from. <laughs> There's this great line in the movie, Lost in Translation. Have you seen this movie? Mm-hmm. Or Bill Murray's having a midlife crisis. And what's the name of the actress? Scarlett Johansson. And he says, you know, it's been really rough. And then she turns to him and says, have you bought a Porsche yet? (laughs) (laughs) So so this is the Pu'er, which then comes into mythology as Pan, the god of Pan. And actually, Pan is where psychiatry got the idea of panic. When you have a panic attack, that's Pan. That's that, that god waking you up in the middle of the night because you're not paying attention. You need to grow up. <laughs> so next time you wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack, you, you can ask yourself, what do I need to bow to that I'm, not, that I'm not devoting myself to? What can I pay attention to here? So imagine that the unconscious, and we talked about this last week, is trying so hard to get you to be awake to something that it's actually literally going to wake you up in the middle of the night so you pay attention and I think that if you don't have a meditation practice it's hard to pay attention to dreams because something wakes you up and it's so threatening that either you push it away you try and get rid of it right, or you analyze it away but actually uh, when you have a practice, you can just see how the mind can just hold whatever's showing up. And so to me, that's what Shinru Suzuki is saying when he's saying meditation and bowing is the same practice. Don't make those separate practices. Because meditation practice is a kind of bowing. It's a kind of throwing up what, what we know. Or like I've been giving in the meditation section, just dying. Just allow yourself to die. A student asked Shinra Suzuki, when I start practicing with you, 
Do I have to give up the will to live? That's a really deep question. Has anybody ever felt this before? Like really to keep on the path of renunciation, do I have to give up the ambition, my ambition to live? And Shinra Suzuki said, yes. Without gaining the will to die. Isn't that nice? You have to give up the will to live, but without gaining the new idea that you have to die. So that's to die. That's really to die. Uh, Dogen said, as long as there is true bowing, the way of the Buddha will not deteriorate. Isn't that nice? He's not saying you need to copy sutras and memorize texts and, you know, get DVDs of Pima Chodron. <laughs> He's saying all, all you have to do is actually keep up the, the, the teaching and the practice of bowing. The practice of bowing. So when I was in Japan last month in the monastery, the, the way that you bow, they're very particular about how you put your hands together because they really want you to feel both of your hands, both sides of the body. And so you learn four, four different hand movements. Uh, the first one is called the firm gasho. So gasho is like Anjali Mudra, but in Japanese. Gasho just means palms together. Gasho. Um, we can try it together. So this is the firm gasho. And then the, and it's just really interesting to do this with your body. Uh, so the elbows are light. The armpits are very hollow. And actually, if you really give attention to your armpits, when your armpits get hollow, the roof of your mouth gets hollow. It's a really nice feeling. It's like, it's like there's a diaphragm right through the heart that lifts if you're not sloppy with your elbows. And then the second uh, hand position is called no mind gasho. And that is, it's less formal. So if there's not like practice going on, you would just put your palms together like this so there's a little space inside like for a small bird. And it's called no mind gasho. And you can guess why it's called no mind gasho. It's because there's nothing in there. And then uh, the next kind of gasho was called lotus gasho, which is like this, where you just take the tips of your fingers apart like this. So this is like a lotus flower blooming. This is a very nice bow, too, because you really get the palms glued, and then you keep the tips separate very upright and it really gives this sense of yeah. and the third kind of gasho which I've actually never seen before and never seen since is called the diamond gasho which is either like this or like this um, where you make like a diamond with your, with your fingers you never saw anyone use it so it must be for some secret purpose <laughs> but then again it's good to know where these things come from so, you know, it's said that where all the yoga postures come from, which are all just mudras of the body, are from spontaneous movements in meditation. So people, go, so people would go into caves, and they would go into very deep meditative practices, and then their bodies would spontaneously move into yoga postures, or their hands were spontaneously move. And I think that that's not such a stretch when you think about times in your life where you've spontaneously bowed, where you touch that place in yourself where you fall to your knees and you just bow. You don't even know the form and you just do it. And that's the story of the Buddha, that the Buddha had his awakening in the morning looking up at Venus. And then a few days later, he went to go tell his teachers, learned that they had passed away, and then he went to go find the five disciples that were studying with him before his awakening. And when he met the disciples, the first thing they did was they spontaneously bowed to him. It's part of the story that gets left out sometimes. I always thought it was, it's the most beautiful part, which is that it happens in silence, is that spontaneously, they bow to the Buddha and the Buddha. So what is that that comes in us 
that just naturally wants to, to, to bow, that recognizes that we can be small. We don't have to be so puffed up. And we can be devoted to all those little spaces, um, those little anarchies of sadness, sex, money, all the places where we get caught that we don't think of our spiritual practice. Or all those places in our city that haven't been you know, exploded by capitalism. Trees, mustard greens by the Don River. Has anyone been to, to High Park lately and seen um, uh, all of the nettles? You know, it's like a thousand tons of nettles everywhere. And like, how also can we be devoted to that? In other words, how can we bow to all the places that we just miss all day long? Because we're just seeing what we want to see. And in that way, bowing and meditation is the same practice. Same practice. Bowing to the places we get stuck. Bowing to the places we overlook. So, then he says, After you, oh, so this is the end of that chapter. After, last paragraph, after you have practiced for a while, you'll realize, oh, this is one of those funny sentences where he's like so simple and so hard. After you practice for a while, you will realize that it's not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. <laughs> Does anybody feel this way? Because <laughs> you first start practicing and it's so big at the beginning, right? You have so much progress at the beginning. But then after you practice, you realize, oh, that wasn't really so. Those were just little, little. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It's not like going out in a shower in which you know you're going to get wet. In a fog, you do not know you are going to get wet. But as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you will say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually, it's not. When you get wet in a fog, it's very difficult to dry yourself. So there's no need to worry about progress. It's like studying a foreign language. You can't do it all of a sudden, but you repeat it over and over and you will master it. This is the Soto way of practice. We can say either that we make progress little by little or that we do not even expect to make progress. Just to be sincere, and make our full effort in each moment is enough. There is no nirvana outside of practice. So some of you can hear Dogen in the background. There's no nirvana outside of practice. So if you stop positing a practice heading towards enlightenment, the whole thing's right here. Right here, look, look around. The light in the room, people together, th this is it. But sometimes our heart is so scared to open up to that because we've taught it that it's something else. It's not this. It can't be this. And that something else is always getting in the way of our satisfaction. So hard to see. I'll read one last part. This is continuing next page. I do not feel like speaking after meditation. I feel the practice of meditation is enough. But if I must say something, I think I would like to talk about how wonderful it is to practice meditation. Our purpose is just to keep this practice forever. This practice started from beginningless time, and it'll continue into an endless future. And if you've read to the end of the book, that's all he's saying. He's saying, what I'm teaching is not Buddhism. What I'm teaching is not religion. Uh, what I'm teaching is something that's this railroad track that's been there from the beginning of time, past the end of time, and past that also. And what's the railroad track? It's sincerity. And we know when we sit, we come here to sit. 
And you know when you sit that you're touching that place where there's sincerity. And he's saying, like, you don't have to understand the sincerity so much. Remember what he said? If you try to look at the railroad track, you just get dizzy. Buddha will take care of the railroad track. And then my favorite line in the whole book, when there is no gaining idea in what you do, then you do something. And this, this is my favorite of all his lines. No gaining idea. He can only say that because English is not his first language. But it's such a good teaching. How do you practice with no gaining idea? That's why when we're sitting, I keep saying the past few weeks, anticipate nothing. Anticipate nothing. Okay. Another uh, evening, not following my notes. I had one story I was going to tell you, actually. I'll just tell it, and then we'll open it up for discussion. You know, I started crying when I read the part about fog. Because Shinra Suzuki was writing in San Francisco. And I don't know how many of you have spent time in San Francisco. But quite, quite, quite a lot of months you spend in fog. And one of the happiest times in my life was I went to Green Gulch Farm with my brother. And Green Gulch Farm is uh, Shinra Suzuki's center there, which is, um, if you've ever been to San Francisco, it's, the Golden Gate Bridge runs into a mountain called Mount Tamalpais. And on the other side of that mountain is a big forest called Muir, Muir Woods or something like that. And that's where the center is. And the, the center is covered in eucalyptus trees. And the thing about the Northern California landscape, if anyone's ever been there, is it's, it's asking you to hike in it. Because it's not like BC, where there's these mountains. It's like impossible to, to walk anywhere. But the, the, the hills are rolling, you know. And some of the are very dry. And then the fog comes in. So, one, so I went there with my brother, some of you know him, and uh, so we were, we were on this trail, and then the fog came in, and then you couldn't see anything. We couldn't even see our feet. It, that's how fog, so it was like being in a cloud. And then so all of a sudden, spontaneously, we just started, well, we were on a hill, and we just started running down the hill, and you couldn't see anything, and running as fast as we could down the hill. And I didn't know if there was a tree coming or anything. And we were both crying, actually, and laughing at the same time. And then we slowed down, and then the sun came out. And then there was a shadow of my face in front of my face. Because it was cloud. But it was so it was thick, but light enough that there could be a shadow on something with space. It was a, I'd never seen anything like it. And... Um, so anyways, and then we came down at the end and we were soaking wet because the fog was so thick that you get, you get drenched. But if you walk through it slowly, you wouldn't have gotten wet. It was very strange this time. So good to, with my brother to have, to have this experience. And I forgot about it. I, I've never said it. I've never told anyone that, that story. And then when he talked about the fog, like I felt that fog that, that he was talking about. And practice needs to be a bit like this. Just in this soft fog. Like, you know, how many of you, when you first started coming here, it's like you debated for the first year, like, oh, should I come Tuesday night? You know? <laughs> and then after a while, it's like you're just in the fog. Yeah. And I mean the good kind of fog, where you're getting moist, cooling down, cools you down in the hot city, just to come and practice and be with others, touch some part of you with other people that maybe you don't always touch. So that's all I have to say about bowing. We were going to work on a koan. Get that. (laughs) So anybody have anything they want to share? about bowing or about this no-gaining idea? 
which I think is the same thing. <coughs> Isn't there a gaining idea in vowing? Vowing? Vowing. Vowing? A gaining idea? Yeah. Because you said at some point you made an analogy between vowing and vowing. Yeah. And I've sort of been thinking about the four vowels that we do. Yeah. It seems to me there's a gaining idea in those vowels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those vows are the most idealistic thing a human being could say. Okay, so. <laughs> and so, so, but this, this is what humans do in order to have a deeper experience of themselves, is they use words and phrases that are impossible, impossible to achieve. And then you vow towards something that's impossible just in order to bow. It ha sometimes it has to be so impossible to make yourself small enough so it doesn't just seem like ambition. And Shinra Suzuki says, uh, I don't know if you read this chapter, but it was really cool. Listen to this. Each bow expresses the four bodhisattva vows. These vows are sentient beings are innumerable. We use a different translation, but we vow to save them. Our desires are limitless. We vow to get rid of them. Although the teaching is limitless, we vow to learn it all. Buddhism is unattainable. We vow to attain it. And then he says, if it's unattainable, how can we attain it? And then he says, but we should. <laughs> then he says, to think because it's possible, we'll do it, is not Buddhism. Even though it's impossible, we have to do it because our true nature wants us to. But actually, whether or not it's possible or impossible is not the point. If our innermost desire to lose our self-centeredness arises, we have to do it. We have to make this effort because our innermost desire is appeased and nirvana is there. Before you determine to do it, you have difficulty. Once you start to do it, you have none. So he's putting you in a paradox. He's saying, yes, a, a vow is actually a, a human construct, and you have to do it. Is it not sort of the case that we have to honor the gaining idea, because the gaining idea brings us to the practice? Uh-huh. And then, of course, we let go of it, and we learn to do that through the practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like saying, like, I'm going to come to meditation to reduce my stress. Yeah. That's my vow. That's my intention. And then you get into it, and you start reducing stress. And then, I mean, everybody who meditates, your stress reduces, and, you know, you can measure it. Basically, meditate will be better. And then it starts opening these other gates where you start seeing these other dimensions and then it requires a new intention. But I agree with you. I think um, making a vow is its a fantasy. It's a construct. And at the same time, it's aligning something. How do you hold both those things at the same time? What, what do you think? But don't we often... In, in English, when we use the word wish, isn't that like, isn't that sort of more comparable to bowing than bowing? Wishing? Wishing. I don't know. I think physically, to me, wishing is a little more like this, and the bowing is more releasing. Maybe the bowing is giving up the fantasy part of the vow. So it's like you make this vow, and then you throw up. <laughs> so maybe vowing and bowing are not the same, but they go together. I don't know. I'm just making this up. Right? So you have this intention. Because, I don't know, for those of you who know me, like I'm not so big on intention. I actually find intention a little stiff. Um, 
I, I think much more in terms of bowing than setting intentions. I find intention actually kind of closes. It, it, shows, it reorients me, and then it kind of make, closes things down a little bit. So, I don't know. I'm a little hard on intention. You're never supposed to say that in the Buddhist community. So those are some thoughts I have. But I'm with you. I'm with you. I, we chant that chant, and I think, oh, my God. What are we saying? Sentient beings are numberless. I'm going to serve them? Whoa. Take that in. Cravings are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. It's like when Bernie Glassman said, you know, Bernie Glassman had an experience of awakening, and then he said, I'm moving back to New York. I'm going to move to the poorest neighborhood in Yonkers, and I'm going to end homelessness. When he was here, he talked about that. He said, I knew it's impossible to end homelessness, but my vow is I'm going to end homelessness. And it still motivates him, and it's impossible. What's the point of vowing towards something so impossible? What else are you going to do? What is he going to do? This being is the most important. I'm going to save it. I'm going to serve it. Well, maybe there's a time for that. But this human being is made up of a lot of other beings. Actually, a human being is mostly made up of non... It's totally made up of non-human parts. So suddenly, if you want to vow to fix this being, you have to fix other beings. Let's say, I'm, let's say I have, you know, I don't know, fibroids, you know. Nowadays, you know, science is showing that one of the best way to heal fibroids is to reduce stress and heal your gut, heal your digestive system. So if I'm going to heal my digestive system, I have to start eating well. If I'm going to eat well, I have to start going to farmer's markets. Suddenly, I become aware of the economics of a farmer's market. Suddenly, I become aware of how food is grown. Suddenly, I become aware of other people in my neighborhood. Have you, ever, have you noticed how happy people are at farmer's markets? <laughs> have you seen this? Like, you go to a farmer's market, everyone's so happy, except the vendors. <laughs> yeah. So... In other words, like you open up just to this orientation of a vow, and then it just gets so big. So we're saying, well, then just go to the maximum. There's, there's so many sentient beings you can't count them. Let's serve them. That's, to me, that's a beautiful thing that only a human could say. And then you get ideas about that, and then you have to throw them up. So that then you get back up, and you're fresh. All at the same time. Anyways, you don't have to agree with that. <laughs> Jordan. It's a little bit separate, but uh, I was thinking about Bowie recently and thinking about what he said uh, about gift giving, about how it's uh-huh. happened from like, the big eye and the little eye. Yeah. I mean, isn't it interesting that when you look at most of the plants that are hallucinogenic, that various people ingest, so I've heard, (laughs) that uh, when you ingest them, the first thing that happens before you go on that journey is you throw up. 
You know, if you eat peyote, the first thing that happens after you eat peyote is you purge everything that's in your gut. You just purge, and then you start. I mean, that's kind of interesting. There's something interesting about that to me. And I think we all know this. I mean, if you really want to go deep into something, uh, the, the letting go sometimes is just involuntary throwing, you know? You just have to hit a wall and say, okay, I can't do this anymore. Surrender. Some of you, are, I hope I'm not making you sick. <laughs> throwing it. Yes, Patty. You, I never feel more vulnerable than when I'm growing up. Yeah. You're just at the, you're hoping someone might come and help yeah. you out a little bit, rush yeah. back. Or, you know, yeah. that's it. Like, that's yeah. as low as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels awesome. What's that? <laughs> it feels awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feels great. You go right back to the party. <laughs> Shinra Suzuki says, um, <laughs> bowing is a very serious practice. You should be prepared to bow even in your last moment. Even though it's impossible to get rid of our self-centered desire, we have to do it. Our true nature wants to. That line... You should be prepared to bow even in your last moment. But he's not just talking about... See, he's saying bowing and meditation is the same practice. In your last moment, you have to be prepared to bow. To die. To bow. Give up. Give it up. Yes? Are we like... I think that's such a great example, Stuart, of how when you set a vow or you're doing something and you're really looking clearly at it and it just opens up in all these other directions. You're walking your dog and then you're looking at factory farming. And, you know, according to Shinra Suzuki, and you have to do something about it. Any other comments or questions? We'll wrap up. Yeah. Can you explain what Suzuki means by dualism? Dualism? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I understand dualism. I'm just joking, yeah. Too. I understand platonic dualism. Yeah. The material versus the immaterial. So when, when he is talking about dualism, he's talking about when you're creating a separation between the subject and an object when there's an observer observing an observed. 
That's that's what he means by dualism, and that and so binary thinking is also another form of dualism. This this way that we suffer from having a separate self all the time. We're going through the world as a separate self, and he's saying that that's an illusion of dualism. And when he talks about non-duality, he's not talking about the end of that completely. He's talking about allowing for the end of... So he's, he's talking about allowing for the collapse of the subject and object, but also allowing it to come back again and seeing that that's an illusion. And I think this is where a lot of people get confused with non-dualism, is they think non-dualism is just to have no dualism. But you can't live like that. We, we have dualism. If you speak, you have dualism. So non-dualism is to have the experience of no subject and object, and then to see them pop back up again. But it's okay, because you see it. You see subject and object. You respect it. You respect that you have subjectivity. It's really good. And our subjectivity is not the same. So that's what he means when he's talking about dualism and non-dualism. But you know it. You know it when you're sitting. You get still and you experience kind of a cessation of creating separation. And then the mind comes in and goes, oh, that was a cessation of creating a separation. <laughs> and then you get the dualism again. But it's okay. And you're not stirred up by it. Because you're like, oh, this is the mind. Creating the cessation, you know. And then, and then basically you have 10 years of lots of interesting things to watch in your mind. <laughs> So, such a nice night. Let's go outside before it's dark. Let's finish chanting.